Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome, everyone, to episode 71 of the Intercooler podcast. And this one is going to be a little bit different. We're sort of introducing a new format, um, Andrew, because we often talk about places and companies and cars and engines but actually i think the most interesting subject matter in our little world is the people yeah no i i, I completely agree and i don't know if you listen to uh, there's a great thing on radio for which i shows how old i am but um called great lives and it's you know and it's it's matthew paris uh, who's a fantastic journalist uh, and he just every week interviews someone about someone um and it could be anybody from i don't know marilyn monroe to genghis khan uh, I think the only qualification is, and we're going to fail in this very first regard, is the only qualification to get on Great Lives is you've got to be dead. Um, <laughs> and, and our subject this week most certainly isn't. Um, but um, that's fine. We're not trying to copy them. You, but but, but uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I think it would just be nice. We're not going to do this every week, but just to... I mean, there are so many extraordinary figures in this business. And again, this week is going to be a driver. Um, but it's not always going to be a driver. It could be, you know the head of a car company or, or whatever so um, we'll give it a go and see what people think yeah let us know what you think um yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned great lives colin chapman was the subject of a great lives a little while ago he um, was someone went on there and i listened to the, the start of it and matthew paris you know he, he has his view that's fair enough but he made it immediately clear that he had a very dim view of formula one and from the moment that intro onwards i just thought actually i can't listen to this the bloke's so uninterested. I don't think. Yeah, I, don't, I think. I think. I don't think he knows. I don't think he knows anything about Formula One. I think he actually he actively disliked it as well, though, which I just found slightly off-putting. Um, I did. I did listen to one. Um, Sterling did one. He was the interviewee, and his subject was Fangio. Yeah. Um, and he only recorded that about seven or eight years ago um and the thing is it's all on bbc sounds so if you just got bbc sounds and you you go on the great lives thing and you just scroll down you'll find uh, sterling moss on juan manuel fangio 
Um, and that's actually really interesting um, because it's, you know, it's very interesting just to hear, um, you know, someone as, and sadly I'm going to fail again here, but someone as amazing as Sterling talking about someone where I'm afraid today just going to get, kind of get, well, you and me doing it. So um, <laughs> never mind. Well, we've set ourselves up for a fall, haven't we? Uh, well, okay. So let's get stuck into it then. Um, we are talking about, and I didn't realise this was his name until this morning. We're talking about Sir John Young Stewart. J-Y-S. J-Y-S. I didn't realise J was actually for John because we all know him as Jackie Stewart, Sir Jackie Stewart. Um, he is actually the last surviving Formula One world champion from the 60s. Yes. Yeah. 82 years old. Um, a triple F1 champion, Scottish. He competed for nine seasons and won three of them, twice runner-up. 99 starts, and that's an interesting number that we'll come to a bit later on. 27, 27 wins. wins. Exceptional yeah. record. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and even that doesn't actually give a good indication of how good he was for reasons um, I'll explain in a minute. Yeah, well, quite. Um, let's go all the way back to the beginning then, just to sort of give us some context. Born 11th of June 1939 um, in Scotland, a village 15 miles west of Glasgow. Uh, the Stuart family were car dealers, um, successful car dealers. Uh, his father was an amateur motorcycle racer, and his brother was a racing driver, um, Jimmy, yeah, I, I, yeah, Jimmy was he was good. Mm. He competed actually started at the fifty-three British Grand Prix. Also. There you go. I was about, to, I, was about to say, I was about to say. I can't remember what he did. It was the only Grand Prix he did. It, it's it was well. I mean, the whole Jimmy Stewart um, story is actually is, is quite sad because um, well, I mean, this is very much on public record, so we can say it. He did uh, certainly through his later life. Um, he did have a you know a, a, a struggle with with addiction, um, alcohol. Um, but you know he could have been really good. I mean, he raced a works Aston Martin at Le Mans in 1954. Um, DB3S Coupe had a huge accident in it, uh, because not through his fault. The cars were, you know, they had two in there. And they both had huge accidents uh, through aerodynamic instability, and he broke his arm. And um, and then something happened. He had he was going to do. That's right. He was going to be Hawthorne's teammate at Le Mans in 55. Um, which Hawthorne, you know, that's the one that where the terrible accident was. That's the one Hawthorne went and, went and won it. Um, but a few days before, he was racing at the Nürburgring, had another accident, uh, and just said, "That's enough," and walked away from it. But um, at the yeah, Nürburgring, eh? that's interesting. Yeah, mm, very poignant. Um, so back to Jackie, and one of the sort of defining features of his young life was undiagnosed dyslexia. Um, the, the condition just wasn't understood then, and so he was in his forties before it was diagnosed. Yeah, yeah, and so as a young un, his teachers, um, his friends, perhaps his, even his family, just thought he was a bit thick, um, which is a very sad thing. I've got a, a brother with dyslexia, and he's very bright, very sharp. He's he's in a, a very senior management role within the NHS, and he's very good at what he does. But I remember him struggling at school, and even then, twenty odd years ago. 25 years ago it was totally misunderstood and people thought maybe he wasn't particularly intelligent which is totally unfair what what i find so bemusing about this is the disconnect because if you meet jackie as i've done a few times and everyone's seen him being interviewed um you know the last the last words that would ever come into the brain of anyone watching jackie stewart talking was a bit thick 
I mean, the man is, and he's 82 now, and he's as sharp today as he ever was. Um, you know, the man has clearly got a, an enormous intellect. His ability to communicate, um, to structure things in his head. I mean, you know, and it just, it just surprises me that when presented with someone as intelligent as that, who, for some reason, um, struggles with... Uh, written work that your conclusion is not there's something going on here but oh we must be a bit thick um mm. it's extraordinary totally I, different time, but it, but it, it is absolutely and I, th- I think it was only when his son mark uh was diagnosed with it uh when he was a kid that jackie went oh and then realized it was you know, a, a, an inheritable condition and um and yeah there you go and so the, I suppose the main point is that it meant that he was never destined for a life of academia or a professional nope. job. No. Nope. <clears throat> and so he left school at 15, actually, um, and began working in his father's garage as an apprentice mechanic. And so he was involved with cars. And, I mean, it's amazing, really, isn't it? What a twist that was. Um, it was his dyslexia that got him involved with cars. But even before he... Um, he started tinkering with cars and well before he started racing them, he was an exceptionally talented skeet shooter, clay pigeon shooter. Um, he was yeah, he got, national he champion. For the Olympics. He very nearly made the Olympic team. Um, yeah, which 1960. Is good, yeah, good knowledge. Yeah, the, the 1960 Summer Olympics, um, which is, I mean, it's so frustrating, isn't it, that someone can have two very disparate, ex- exceptional talents um, but are, how, how desperate one. are they really? I mean, you know, motor racing, skeet shooting, it's all about hand-eye coordination, isn't it? So there's something there, isn't there? It's, 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 I mean, they cannot be unrelated. I mean, I, haven't, I, don't, I don't know of any other racing drivers who are crack shots, but then again, I know nothing about shooting, so, um, so maybe, maybe there are. But I, I just don't believe that's a coincidence. <laughs> okay, it has, fair it, you know, just that ability to coordinate... Um, in the most you know and, and it's all about reactions isn't it it's all about speed and accuracy um and all the things that you needed well particularly in his day to stay alive in a racing car i've pulled out a couple of extracts from his autobiography um and it was in the very early 60s that he started driving racing um and there, there's one anecdote here that stood out he'd been doing a little bit of racing and to, to decide if he was ready to become a professional driver he tested a jaguar e-type at alton park uh, matching Roy Salvador, Salvadori's times in a similar car the year before. So not quite like for like, but there was that that little sign of promise, that sign of potential. Um, and it was that sort of performance that helped him get noticed, notably by one Ken Tyrrell, who yes. was running the Formula Junior team for the Cooper Car Company. It's interesting, isn't it? That that relationship would go on and, and sort of flourish. Yeah, and, in- Formula, Form, and Formula Junior is kind of what Formula 3 is today. In fact, it became Formula Three, um, and yeah, and he did, and he did really well. And what I've always admired about Jackie is people saw the talent. I think the talent was so obvious; um, people just realised that this bloke was the real deal, and they kept on offering him Formula One drives, and he kept on going, "No, I'm not ready. I'm not ready." Um, and he turned down some really, you know, really decent drives at the top level, um, preferring to stay in Formula Three and Formula Two and really learn his trade. Before I think he did one non-championship race in 1964. He did. He did it in South Africa, the Rand Grand Prix. Um, but 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 really, his um, 
his Formula One career started in uh, nineteen sixty-five when he would have been twenty-five. So you know, quite old to be starting out. Um, but you know, he'd had this other career with his shooting, and he'd worked his way up. Um, and my goodness, when he started, he was ready to go, wasn't he? Wasn't he? Yeah. Um, so that's right. His first F1 season was nineteen sixty-five in a BRM, um, and he came third. Uh, at only his second race, which was the Monaco GP. Um, and later on in the year, he won the Italian GP at Monza um, and finished third in the standings. Yeah, so it, yeah, so he beat Graham Hill, who was his teammate, um, who was already a world champion and had been racing in Formula 1. I think Graham did his first race in 1958. So Graham Hill was in his eighth season in Formula 1. Jackie Stewart was in his eighth race. And he beat him in the same car. Yeah. At Monza. Yeah. <laughs> Gives you an idea, really, doesn't it? And so just imagine someone bursting onto the scene like that. Yeah, that's pretty spectacular, isn't it? And so clearly the talent was there. Um, yeah. The following year, he, he went and won the Monaco GP. Um, but, I mean, it, the season started well, but actually he had two frustrating seasons in 66 and 67 uncompetitive and, 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 and unreliable gonna, yeah this is what i was going to talk about with um the fact that his 27 out of 99 doesn't give a good actual account uh because effectively he lost two seasons to this um i mean brm always did mad things with their cars i mean i think people remember um the v16 brm you know the most you know the most powerful formula one car of its era in the early 1950s but also far and away the most unreliable. Sterling called it the worst car he'd ever driven. Well, they, they, they did something no less mad in the mid-60s. So when the, in 1966, when the, form, when the Formula One went from being a one-and-a-half-litre formula to a three-litre formula, and BRM had an extremely successful um, eight-litre, sorry, eight-cylinder, one-and-a-half-litre engine, they just thought, well, we'll just stick two of them together. So they made, and they shared pistons and conrods and everything, so they turned a one-and-a-half-litre eight, uh, V8 into a three liter H16, an H16. I think it was like they were they they lay on top of each other, and through some convoluted mechanism shared a common crank. But it was essentially two engines. Um, and surprise, surprise, it was a quite heavy and b not very reliable. So you know it did win. It that engine won one race, but it was actually in the back of a Lotus. Jim Clark won at Spa, I think. Uh, Maybe wrong. Spa in sixties. I can't remember sixty six. I guess. Um, but um, yeah. So he, so so Jackie lost two seasons. Um, and so you know when you remember twenty seven out of ninety nine, you think, oh well, you know Jim Clark who did twenty five out of seventy five, so a much better hit rate. Um, you know Jim Clark had some pretty unreliable cars because he was racing for Lotus, but I mean he didn't lose two seasons, and Jackie did. Yeah, that's a lot of ground to lose, isn't it, in terms of win yeah. ratio? Um, yeah. <clears throat> and so. In 66, um, at Spa, uh, he had a big old crash. Um, and as we know, uh, Jackie Stewart became a real champion um, for improving safety in Grand Prix racing. I'm sure we'll come on to that a little bit later. But it's worth talking now about that very formative experience. Still a relatively inexperienced racing driver at a fearsome circuit like Spa, the old Spa. Um, and he had a, a horrible crash. Uh, so there's, there's an account of it here. Um, that I'll just sort of scan through now. Um, the race started dry, 
But midway through the first lap, the heavens opened and left the road resembling polished glass. And the number of cars aquaplaned in various directions. Some were lucky and, rem- and remained on track, others less so. And there's a quote from Graham Hill uh, in the Times. One minute it was dry, the next it was covered in driving rain. One car started to spin and the others as, as they tried to avoid it. Then cars started hitting each other with four eventually involved going in all directions. So just total chaos, pandemonium. We've seen that at Spa multiple times even recently haven't we when the rain comes down the cars just fly off um and so jackie stewart himself told alan henry in the guardian we just ran into a wall of water in the way it can only rain in southern belgium um that was actually three decades later he told alan henry that and it was at 170 miles an hour his brm aquaplaned as he approached the master kink not really where you want that to happen is it and there's this quote from him First I hit a telegraph pole, and then a woodcutter's cottage, and I finished up in the outside basement of a farm building. The car ended up shaped like a banana, and I was still trapped inside it. The fuel tank had totally ruptured inwardly, and the monocoque literally filled up with fuel. It was sloshing around in the cockpit. The instrument panel was smashed. lying in a bath of petrol. Lying in a bath of petrol. The instrument instrument panel panel was smashed, ripped off, and found 200 metres from the car, but the electric fuel pump was still working away. The steering wheel wouldn't come off and I couldn't get out. Ugh, doesn't really bear thinking about, actually. Thankfully, a couple of the other guys, including Hill, um, slid off in the same place, but without having such serious crashes, and they were able to go and help him. Um, and they, the, the, the issue here, and I think what really angered Jackie Stewart, was that there was no provision for an accident. There was no, there was no um, sort of safety car, as it were. There were no paramedics, no emergency crews. And I, I, I think for a moment that this is the same circuit where six years earlier, um, two drivers, two British drivers, Alan Stacey and uh, Chris Bristow, had lost their lives. Um, Sterling had had a normal accident. And then there was one of the Taylors. Was it Mike Taylor? He, had, he went off a of Stavolo. And he went so far off the circuit and <clears throat> the facilities were so poor, it took them three quarters of an hour just to find him, to realise he wasn't on the circuit anymore and to get to where he was. And he had, you know, he had career ending injuries. And yet six years later, when Jackie goes off, it appears they'd learned nothing. And that, I think, is, you know, shocking. Absolutely shocking. It, it tells you how little regard there was for driver safety at the time, even spectator safety. It's, it's, it's unbelievable that that was allowed to happen. And really, you see why it was necessary that someone took a hold of all this and said, this is not good enough. We need to do better. So it, well, it took 25 minutes to get Clark out of the car. Um, and even Stuart. then, the, to get Stuart out of the car, excuse me. And then even then, the, the ordeal was not over. Um, he was loaded into an old ambulance which took him um, to what passed for a medical centre, and he was left there on a canvas stretcher. There were no doctors, says Stuart. I was left on a stretcher, on the floor, surrounded by cigarette ends. It was filthy. Um, And it goes on. He was loaded into another ambulance on the way to Liège with a police escort, but the ambulance lost the police escort. The ambulance driver got lost, didn't know where he was going. Just imagine you've had an enormous crash. You've knocked yourself about... And this is the response that you get from the sport that you're that you're racing in. You can you can see why he was so angered by this. Um, and, and yes, I, th- I think even that in that anger, in that anger, I think he was being 
way ahead of his time because I think that there were lots of drivers who just, you know, we, we can't judge it accurately from where we're sitting now because we have just got too much stuff has happened between now and then. And we, and we think, gosh, you know, today, you know, someone would have been there within 20 seconds and you're out the car and you would have had world-class middle and because none of that existed back then your le- the level of expectations were just so low and i've spoken to a few drivers about this and they said just at the time they said they just wanted to be racing drivers and they tried not to think of the risks when they did they thought it would only happen to other people um and all that just kind of went with the territory and i think that where jackie was so far ahead of his time was to say, well, it does go with the territory, but it shouldn't. And this isn't acceptable. And other drivers were, you know, it would be, he had by no means did he have uh, everybody on his side. Um, you know, I think a lot of people accused him of being, um, you know, a coward. And, you know, this is motor racing and it's a gladiatorial sport. And also, and I do buy into this a bit, everybody who gets into the car knows, get, knows the risks that they are taking. And if you don't like that, you don't have to get into the car. And, and I've always felt that um, to an extent. Um, but at the same time, clearly, you want the sport to be as safe as the sport can be while maintaining um, its magic and its mystique. And even Jackie today will say that the sport's gone too far um, and that actually in its efforts to make motor racing safe, um, it has taken a lot of, away a lot of magic because, for instance, you know, we're replacing gravel traps with um, tarmac run- runoff areas, so there are no consequences to flying off the circuit. So uh, I'm sure we'll get onto this in a minute. But um, he was just, you know, he was just ahead of his time there. Um, and I admire him for it. Yeah, I mean, it, of course, motor racing was dangerous then, but the disregard is is just pathetic, actually, looking back now. There, what, there wasn't a proper proper medical provision there weren't doctors at the circuit you know it's just it's unthinkable now um and, so and you can see why. where people had where people had died yeah for so long i mean this was a circuit where racing started i think in in 1922 um and no guys like dick seaman had died there archie scott brown had died there um and you know in both those cases indeed um one of the contributing factors was that they just weren't attended to i mean both dick seaman and archie scott brown um, okay, they'd been burned and they'd been injured, but they were um, absolutely alive uh, when they came out of the car. Both of them lived for, you know, I don't mean morbid about this, for a while. Um, and I think in both cases, um, had there been, even in that era, the absolute best medical attention that was available, certainly their chance of living would have been um, hugely improved. Yeah, you can see why somebody had to speak out about all this. And it, a few years later, he, he himself said, if I have any legacy to leave the sport, I hope it will be seen to be an area of safety because when I arrived in Grand Prix racing, so-called precautions and safety measures were diabolical. Ah, damning. Um, okay, so uh, you can see why that was such a formative experience for him. Um, and he, he had those two frustrating years. But then come 1968 things started Matra. to turn around. Matra yeah. with, with and, his old and friend. And a DFV. And a DFV and his old friend Ken Tyrrell. Um, and he, he won races again. And it was the following season in 1969 that he won his first title. So all that, all that potential, all that talent, talent fulfilled. He's a Formula One world champion. And that was just the first of three. So, I mean, which, which races or which seasons do you think we should particularly talk about? Okay, so um, probably first. So I mean, okay, what which race? Um, clearly, Nurburgring, nineteen sixty-eight. 
Um, I mean, I think that most people, including Jackie, uh, would say that was his day of day. So um, this was the Nürburgring, and it wasn't the Nürburgring as it is today. Um, it was, you know, there was like, there was less runoff. The track went up and down a lot more. I mean, you know, you can go no and look at footage of it. Obviously, no barriers. It was absolutely bloody lethal on a really good day. And this was not a really good day. The weather was absolutely filthy. It wasn't enough that it was raining. It was bucketing down. And it wasn't enough for it to be bucketing down. It was also thick, thick fog. Um, and he was, um, he was in the Matra with the DFV in the back. Um, he qualified on the third row. Um, but when the race started, there were two races. There was one race for Jackie Stewart and another race for literally everybody else in the race. He was, so he got from the third row. I think at the end of the first lap, he led the field by eight seconds. At the end of the second lap, he led the field by 34 seconds. And then he just disappeared. Now, okay, it's a long lap. I think there were, those races were um, maybe only like 14 laps long. Um, and he did have good tyres on the car. But even so, when he won that race, he won the race, he got out the car, said hello to a few people, shook a few hands, um, and was standing in the grandstand with some mates and an umbrella by the time Graham Hill came over the line to finish second. He finished over four minutes ahead of anybody else in that race. You know, a race full of, you know, world champions, um, some of the finest wet weather drivers of all time, you know, Jackie X among them. They're all there. And yeah, four minutes. He dropped them by four minutes. And I just think that's extraordinary. I mean, I don't think, I can't imagine there has ever been a greater winning margin than that. Um, I mean, there, there may have been in some free second circuits, but in a race where, I mean, nobody actually, you know, I think because it was so horrible, people were so careful, there weren't any big accidents. It's not like, you know, the race got stopped and he somehow managed to, you know, get a bit lucky and get himself an artificial lead. That was just on merit. Four minutes. <laughs> I mean, it's extraordinary. It is absolutely what, what extraordinary. Um, and there was uh, right at the other end of his career, 1973 at Monza. Um, he he only came fourth in this race, but uh, he had a down on power engine. Um, and I think he'd started fourth or fifth or something. I um, mean, he wasn't having a great weekend. Um, and then the car went really, really sideways on him, and he realised he had a puncture. Um, and he managed to get back to the pits, and he lost like a minute and a half because you know they didn't change tyres back then the way that you, you didn't expect to change tyres back then. So you know the whole thing was a bit um, Heath Robinson and took a long time. And he came back onto the he came back into the race, and he was nineteenth um, with a lot of the race already done. Um, and the way he fought back, and the other thing was, I think he'd already won the championship. Okay, he knew he was going to retire. This was right at the end of the seventy three season. He didn't have to do it. That's the thing. But he did anyway. And he just battled his way back through the field. He just... Ken Terrell always said that it wasn't the Nürburgring. Because Ken Terrell said, at the Nürburgring, yeah, Jackie was amazing. But they had, you know, they had a really good car and it had really good tyres. Um, and he, But Ken Terrell said that actually at, at Monza, um, the competition was much, much hotter. And Jackie didn't have to do it. But he still did. And he came home fourth. And Ken Terrell said that it was that race at Monza in 73, not the Nürburgring in 68 that was Jackie's greatest race. <laughs> wow, that's great, isn't it? Um, and he that year, his last win, his last ever F1 win was that year at the Nürburgring. 
Um, and he, he's, he's quoted as saying, nothing gave me more satisfaction than to win at the Nürburgring, and yet I was always afraid. When I left home for the German Grand Prix, I always used to pause at the end of the driveway and take a long look back. I was never sure I'd come home again. Um, he's often attributed with that phrase that we all know, green hell, isn't he? Um, do we know that that's true? Well, I haven't heard that it's not. I don't know that it's true. Um, he may have heard it from somewhere else, but no, I, I, I think um, I've got a... If anybody wants a... I don't know whether you can still get it. I've got a book here called My Greatest Race, and it's got uh, lots of people, Mario Andretti, Jack Brabham, Fangio, Fittipaldi, Graham Hill, then you know, lots of people give their greatest race. But it's got, there's a little bit in here about Jackie talking about the Nürburgring. Um, drivers are often asked what is their favourite circuit. In the majority of cases, they say the Nürburgring is the most satisfying. This is said in most cases while sitting in armchairs in the comfort of their own homes with roaring fires in front of them. But really, I don't believe that too many people would honestly admit that they enjoy driving on the Nürburgring in a Formula One car. I know that whenever I drive there, I get back to the pits and take a big deep breath because, my God, I'm pleased to be home. Flipping heck. Fair play to him as a triple world champion for being outspoken about the, that place and the dangers. Yeah. That's yeah. brave, isn't it? That's super brave. Yeah. Um, particularly can I, can that I mention era. something else? Not Formula One. Because I think people, just because Jackie won those three titles, they just think of Jackie as, you know, just a great Formula One driver, which obviously he was. But he did do other stuff. Mm. Um, Can-Am. You know, for instance, Can-Am. Yeah, so <laughs> in 1971, he drove a Lola in Can-Am. Now, because he was quite busy doing other stuff, yeah, he, he only did half the season. There were 10 races, he did five of them. And he still came third, okay, behind the two McLarens, okay. He was, in 1971, he was the only person to beat the McLarens because the McLarens of Peter Revson and Denny Hume, they were just, because they'd been doing it for so long and because they were so good and because McLarens had won everything in Can-Am almost since the start of, in fact, basically since the start of Can-Am, um, they were regarded as unbeatable. And in that, and the, this 971 was the last season before the turbo Porsches came over and just changed the rules completely. So in that, so when the McLarens were at their absolute best, they got beaten twice, both times by Jackie Stewart, who had never raced in Can-Am before, never raced Can-Am cars before. He only did half the season and he still came third and he won twice and he put, and he put it on pole a lot of times as well. I mean, it's just, just gives you an idea of the measure of the man. You know, he's used to racing, you know, tiny little cigar tube Formula One cars. And then he goes over there into a, with a big banger Lola with an eight and a half litre V8 in the back of it. And he's still the best of them. <sighs> okay, well, let's, let's finish off his Formula One career and then we can talk about life after Formula One because there's plenty to say. Um, so his final race was going to be the US Grand Prix at Watkins Glen in 73. It was going to be his 100th race. What a way to sign off. Um, but his teammate, and actually protégé as well, I think, Francois Sauvert, lost his life in practice. Horrible accident going underneath the guardrail. Um, and because of that, Jackie Stewart just said, mm, no, I'm done. He'd already won the championship, yep. didn't need to take that risk, and so he just he, said, He no, had decided earlier that season um, that he was going to quit, and he didn't tell anybody. I think he told Ken didn't tell anybody else i don't think he told his family um and then when an event like that happens um you know obviously the team withdraws the other car um and yeah and that was i'm going to do this now i i I wrote something down before i came on bear with me a second i'm going to read a list of names which which will hopefully give you 
some idea of what he was facing. So, bear with me. Lorenzo Bandino, Pedro Rodriguez, Joe Bonnier, Joe Siffert, Paul Hawkins, Lucian Bianchi, Bruce McLaren, Jochen Rint, Jim Clark, Mike Spence, Gerhard Mitter, Ludovico Scalfiotti, Piers Courage, Ignacio Guionti, Francois Sever, Peter Revson, Roger Williamson, and Joe Slesser. Every single one of those drivers died racing a car during Jackie's career. Okay? How many is that? Hang on. Add in Rolf Stommelen, Ronnie Peterson, Mark Donahue, and Patrick Depaye are people who Jackie also raced against who died in racing cars after Jackie had stopped racing. I mean, it's just... There are over 20 names on that list. Over 20 people who died um, while racing cars during Jackie Stewart's career. Um, and given that he did... Now, you know, let us say that he did nine seasons, didn't he? It's over 20 people. So that's two and a bit people per season. And given that he did nine seasons... I mean, actually, his chances of surviving for as long as he did... Um, I mean, it's just... I, I, I find myself getting quite emotional about it because I, I just know that um, you know, even if I'd had talent, even if I had money, I just, I, I just, I just couldn't have done it because I would have, I would have thought too much about the odds. But you can see, you know, he must have been. I mean, he's, you know, he knew all those people. But some of them, people like Piers Courage, certainly Jochen Rint, Joe Bonnier, were really, really good friends of his. So you know, Jochen Rint was, you know, pretty much his closest friend in motor racing, um, and. Oh, it's just it's, it's just it's, yeah. it's unthinkable that his drive to improve safety at that time was met with any resistance whatsoever given what yeah. was happening a absolutely. couple of times a year just staggering absolutely um okay actually at the point that he retired he um he held the record for most wins in formula one at 27 he, yeah. he held that record for 14 years until 1987 say, I, mansell no not mansell Nope. 1987. Prost. Prost, yeah. Prost beat him. Okay. Prost took the record. Um, Nigel Mansell took his record for a British driver. Ah, uh, um, okay. And, yeah, so there you go. That, it, it, that context is really helpful, isn't it? Because it, it demonstrates just what a titan of the sport he was at the time and long after he stopped racing as well. Well, and even now, um, for, for him to hold that record for as long as he did. Um, okay, so he's retired. Um, he's a, a champion for improving safety in the sport. He, he wasn't the only one, you know. I, I mean, you know, we, we, we have to acknowledge um, Graham Hill's widow, Betty Hill, always got a bit upset when people used to say that Jackie single-handedly raised standards and saved. All. I mean, you know, Jackie was, you know, I guess he was the most vocal. He was certainly the most visible. Um, and I would never for a moment um, want to detract from his contribution. But what I would say is that other, there were, I know Graham Hill was one, um, and there were others um, who kind of realised that Jackie was actually talking sense. Um, but I think it was Jackie who got the ball rolling. And I think he probably, if anybody could be regarded as the prime architect of that, um, it probably is Jackie. And he was pushing for actually quite basic things, barriers, barriers in front of the pits, um, full face helmets, mandatory seatbelt usage, um, just stuff that we absolutely take for granted today, but they did without back then. Um, and actually, he led a few boycotts, um, sitting out some races that he, he didn't feel comfortable with. Again, enormously brave. Um, and he was really criticised for doing this. Um, he said himself, I would have been a much more popular world champion if I had always said what people wanted to hear. 
I might have been dead, but definitely more popular. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, um, and so, <laughs> quite apart from being a crack shot, a triple world champion, uh, an advocate for, for safety in the sport, he also, uh, with his son, ran a team, the Stuart Grand Prix, which was ultimately Incredibly sold to Ford. Incredibly successful. Mm. Yeah, well, yeah, but, um, well, before Stuart Grand Prix, you know, Paul Stuart Racing, um, you know, which, which is son Paul, um, who's one of the nicest guys in the world, um, ran with Jackie. Um, but it was, but it, Paul Shaw, I think, I think Jackie was, you know, helped found it and contributed it and everything else. Um, but they became absolutely dominant in Formula 3. And then, as you say, yes, it became Stuart Grand Prix. Um, in 97? 96. And, you know, they won a race, didn't they? Yeah, fair play. There's no mean feat. Do, do, you know do you know what, where and who? No. Okay. <laughs> Silverstone, 99. But it wasn't the British Grand Prix. It was the European Grand Prix. And Johnny Herbert. Ah, okay. Uh, but they also, they also, there was also an amazing race at Monaco, at Monaco in 97, where Ruben so nearly won it. Um, and he came, he came second because... What happened? I think the weather was horrible or... Yeah, but basically he didn't stop and everybody thought he was going to stop and refuel and he didn't. Um, and yeah, there was sort of Jackie in tears and I can remember all that. So yes, he became a successful team owner as well before, as you say, selling it to Ford and um, then perhaps doing slightly less well. So that, that team though became... Jaguar became Red Bull, is that right? Exactly correct. Exactly yeah. correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so we, we should talk about... Because you've um, spent a bit of time with him, so we'll come to that in a moment. But before we move on, we must mention first that he was knighted in 2001. Um, and now one of his big things is um, Race Against Dementia, the charity yes. that, he's, yep. that he's spearheading. Um, much, uh, much of it because his wife, Lady Helen, has dementia and he's seen what that does to a person. And he's, he's set up this charity to help fund research into finding a cure for this horrible disease. Yeah. Um, and it's he's tireless, isn't he? He's eighty-two, and he's still he, he is he's still, a, I mean, he's still he, campaigning. He is an absolutely driven man, uh, and he always has been like that. He's always been like that. He's always, you know, sitting around with his feet up. Just isn't the isn't the Jackie Stewart way. He he always wants to be doing stuff. He always wants to be contributing, um, and yeah, he's on it now as I think he as as I think he ever was. And you know, and and, and you know, and quite clearly. You know, and he and he said that you know this is the most important battle of his life um, to try to change um, the outcomes for people with this appalling disease, um, and yeah, it's it's given him a new focus, and uh, you know you wouldn't wish on anybody, would you? But you know he is, you know, well, I think I think Lady Helen was diagnosed in well about five years ago. Um, when he so he would have been what seventy seven then, but you know in his late seventies, early eighties, he is attacking this new issue with all the energy um, with which he approached his Formula One career fifty years ago. Extraordinary. Mm. And someone with his background, his achievements, his platform is well placed to make a difference here. So fair play to him. Race Against Dementia. Just go and search it if you want to find out a little bit more about what he's up to. Um, okay, but let's uh, talk about your recollections of Sir <laughs> well, Jackie I mean, Stewart. I, yes, yes. I mean, it, it's not as if... I mean, I suspect if Jackie Stewart walked into a room and saw me, <laughs> he might go, do I recognise that bloke? <laughs> no, I don't think I do. Um, but, um, you know, <laughs> he meets millions of people all the time. But I have, 
you know, I've, um, I, I had a bit of a run-in with him when I was the editor of Motorsports. Um, we did something which he didn't appreciate, um, and we had to make a quite a large donation to the Grand Prix Mechanics Trust. I mean, the thing about Jackie is he's a, he's a bloke who... Uh, anybody who's worked with Jackie will tell you that he is a person who has very high standards and he expects very high standards of everybody that he works with. Um, and that suits certain people and perhaps doesn't suit certain other people. Um, and... But in, in, in all other times um, when I have um, come across him, um, he has been charming, highly professional, um, and and always, always, always good to listen to. He gives good value. He's one of these guys that when he talks to a journalist, and so many racing drivers aren't like this, so many racing drivers talk to journalists because they kind of feel that they have to, um, and they just want to get the interview out of the way as soon as possible, so the answers are quite short, they don't really think about it. You can see that Jackie is sitting there thinking, well... This is going to get written down. This is going to get repeated. Um, so it needs to be good. So he says interesting stuff. He also, by doing that, helps you do your job. And so he makes you look good too. Um, so I mean, I've only interviewed him a couple of times, but uh, you always come away thinking, that's great. He also, he's, also, you know, he's also a bloke, although he has you know, made his, latterly made his career out of being an ambassador um, for, I mean, particularly for Rolex. I know he's been an ambassador for them, for the Ford Motor Company. Um, you know, he's not one of these guys who's only going to trot out the, you know, the party line. He does say interesting stuff. He does take stands. He does tell you what he thinks, which is great. Um, so um, one, what, what I did do once, and this must have been 10 years ago, a bit more maybe, I did get driven around a track by him um in a noble of some description i think it was an m400 um and it was silverstone and i think what had happened i think that his son mark is in the film business or the video business or, or whatever um and they'd made a thing a documentary of his life or something and it was publicity and jackie was there and they were there in the brdc and that was fine um and but they had the circuit for a bit uh, and I'm not sure anybody else got to do it, but I'm not coming whether I just asked or whatever. But anyway, I got to be driven by Jackie Stewart, who even then would have probably been certainly late sixties, possibly early seventies, in this noble round track. Um, I'm, you know, I'm very lucky. I've been driven round tracks by you know, all sorts of amazing people. Um, but what was so incredible about being driven by Jackie was. He just made driving a car really fast look like the easiest thing anybody had ever done. It was just... I can remember that it was so accurate. The car always exited the corner in exactly the same place, to the millimetre. There was no oversteer, there was no understeer. It was just going at a speed I couldn't have imagined being able to make it go. It was so undramatic he was talking away. And I can remember coming back in and Jackie got out of the car and went somewhere else. And Mark Stewart came up to me with a grin on his face and said, what do you think? And I just told him that I thought... Ugh. And he turned around to me and he said, yeah, but Dad's got an unfair advantage. And I said, well, what's that? He said, no one's told him it's difficult. <laughs> it's just never occurred to him that it's a difficult thing to do, has it? No. No. And, and I thought there was a lot... I mean, that's, the how, that's how he drove. He drove like someone who didn't realise that what he was doing was difficult. And and if you and and if you look at the you know if you look at footage of him driving you know back in his career Formula One cars he was always you know, he was just the the sort of you know the ultimate smooth keep it going forward driver 
Um, you know, he wasn't a big sideways merchant or anything like that. He wasn't a dramatic driver. It was all about momentum. It was all about carrying speed. Um, and he used to, when he, t- he, he taught people how to drive, um, and he would always talk about, didn't he actually have a basket of air? Well, no, I think he had a basket of balls on the, on the bonnet of the car. And he'd drive around Brown's Hatch. Um, he, I think he did this for Ford and a Ford Granada or something, whatever. But the idea was, is that he could drive around Brown's Hatch at a ridiculous rate, but none of the ping pong balls in this basket would ever come out because he was taking so little out of the car. He was driving it so smoothly. There were so few sudden reactions. They all just stayed there. And that's, um, yeah, that's the way that he raced. And it, it was an extraordinary, I mean, it wasn't, um, you know, being, I mean, it wasn't like going around the Nürburgring with Jonathan Palmer in a McLaren F1, which was one of the most terrifying things I've ever done because it was sideways absolutely everywhere. It, wasn't like, it was like the opposite of that. But in its own way, it was just as impressive, possibly more so. Mm. Well, you can see why that driving style um, brought such rewards in a, in a 60s or 70s Grand Prix car, can't you? Absolutely. That very smooth, absolutely. efficient style. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I suspect, what kept him alive. Um, because, you know, he... I'm not saying that he never binned it. You know, he clearly he binned it at Spa. But, you, I mean, he, he wouldn't just go off the circuit. You know, if you drive into a wall of water, then, you know, you're a passenger, aren't you? And that can happen. But, um, yeah, I th- and, I, and I think I think he was probably quite kind to the machineries. I don't think he... Well, apart from the H16, I, you know, I don't think he had a reputation for blowing things up. I think, you know, he probably, um, you know, made a lot of his own luck by always being there at the end, not making mistakes, uh, not stressing the machinery. And back then, when those cars were really really fragile a you know they mechanically broke quite a lot but they structurally broke quite a lot too and i suspect that he did an awful lot to keep himself winning and keep himself alive by not pushing these things you know harder and faster than they cared to go well there you go 45 minutes on sir john young that passed quite quickly didn't it (laughs) it went quickly didn't it we probably could have done loads more Uh, but he's a great candidate for um the first in this sort of mini series maybe it needs a name we'll give that some thought um but there you go. Let drives. us know what you great drives. No, I don't. Great knows. drives. <laughs> Let us know what you think of this sort of new format and who you'd like us to talk about. Um, yeah, that'd be, be great. Idea. Drivers. Yeah, they, they don't have to be, and they don't even have to be people that anyone's ever heard of. They don't all have to be, you know, guys who have sort of entirely untarnished reputations. You know, we put, you know, put a few, you know, bad boys in there too. That's fine. I'm more than happy to talk about that. Just, but they have to be interesting. Yeah, it's not enough that they were just kind of quite quick or quite successful or whatever. They've just got to be really interesting people that we can um, get stuck into. You know, multifaceted lives like, like, like Jackie. Yeah, be cool. There we go. Um, let us know. And we've not even spoken about the app today, but I'll just do a quick run through of some of the stuff that's been on there recently. The Intercooler app, um, it's a new kind of digital car magazine. The whole point is that we've got the best writers, the best writing, writing the most interesting stories, and it's all packaged in the most convenient way. And that's a, a digital app. It's on your phone. It's always with you. Um, so recently, Andrew has driven, quite appropriately actually, the six-wheeled Tyrrell P34. Uh, we've had Andrew English having a good old rant about touchscreens and associated technology. That's resonated with a lot of people. Um, we've also had a couple of pieces from Henry Catchpole. He's driven the new Bowler Defender and a McLaren F1. Um, so there's been some really Not feeling cool sorry for there. Henry this week. No, no sympathy from us. Um, but go and check out the app. Just search the Intercooler on whichever app store you use. You'll find it and you can start your free trial. Um, uh, go on. And we put up new stories, apart from Sunday, every single day. So it's not like you have to wait a month or three months or whatever for your monthly or quarterly mag to come out. 
new stories, top writers every day. Go and check out the app. That's all I want you to do this week. So thank you for listening. Thanks. See you next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.